sing a song for you. Damn, Chris gonna show you a thing or two. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and in Western Los Angeles. Oro was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to treat alcoholism and drug addiction by means of compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has many, many years of treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible. They have crazy amenities, fucking sound bath meditation, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, surfing, equine therapy, and more. Over the years of making the show, lots of our listeners have gone to Oro. I've only heard incredibly rave reviews. So if you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get well, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at The Phoenix. What is The Phoenix? The Phoenix is an incredible nonprofit organization and app. The Phoenix was designed to help addicts and alcoholics to have fun in their recovery, which is a great, 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 great mission. They have classes and all sorts of cool things. Hiking, running, fucking basketball, boxing, camping, arts and crafts, book clubs, meditation and mindfulness, social events, water sports, powerlifting, rock and ice climbing. Have you ever ice climbed? I don't think I've ever ice climbed. Yoga, they do it all. Check them out at thephoenix.org slash dopey to find out more. All you need is 48 hours of clean time and you can be uh, having fun with other people in recovery. So one more time, you go to thephoenix.org slash dopey and go have fun. I want to tell you guys about a great recovery podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages about two middle-aged suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, alt-recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your stuff, social media, all that stuff, or middleagesrecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Sober Buddy. Sober Buddy is an amazing thing. It's an app. It's a platform. It's a community. It is a tool in your sober toolbox. If you're looking to go to Sober Zooms, check out YourSoberBuddy.com. If you're interested in being on a social media platform that supports your recovery, helps you 
have a laugh, feel connected, go to YourSoberBuddy.com. If you want an app that counts your clean days, gives you challenges, and helps you maintain your sobriety, go to YourSoberBuddy.com or check them out on the App Store or the Google Play Store. I host a Zoom on Wednesday mornings. It is incredibly sober and enriching. It's YourSoberBuddy.com, available at the App Store or the Google Play Store. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and this is episode number 443. Let's give us a... Yay! Hope you guys are well. It is a treat, as always, to uh, put another Dopey into the universe. You know what I never do? I never say you should subscribe and like it. And I mean, I used to say it a lot. Chris used to say, give us reviews. But why don't you give us reviews and like it and subscribe to it and tell your friends. If you love Dopey, my dad always says that. He's like, David, why don't you tell the audience to tell their friends? Because if they told their friends, more people would listen. So tell your friends so more people could listen. Write reviews so my dad can read them. Subscribe if there's anywhere to subscribe, all that. Join Patreon. Fucking Patreon is booming Good stuff is available all the time on Patreon. I just posted the uh, the most corrupt New York City cop video this week on Patreon, so that's available there. There's some just for today's. I try to perform the Love Boat theme. I do a terrible job, but then Steve Schneider does it well. It's all on Patreon. It's a little world of dopey. If you love the show, support the show. Join the Patreon community. It's fun. And we do meetups and stuff. Christmas is approaching, and uh, and Hanukkah has started. So happy Hanukkah to all of our Jewish listeners out there, and I hope you guys are doing good. And uh, I don't know. I have such weird, mixed feelings about the holidays. I love the holidays, and I'm very grateful to be sober, and I'm very grateful to have a nice life and stuff. And I think I was taking out the garbage the other day, and my kids were sitting in the kitchen, and... I walked out the and there's a you know there's a door going from our kitchen to the yard and I turned around and I looked inside and I saw my kids and I felt all grateful but then I had kind of a flashback to Christmases years ago when I was using and the Christmas that always pops into my head was this Christmas when I was working at Katz's it was you know it was probably I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, and I was still using heroin really heavy, and I left Katz's with a bunch of money, and um, I bought a bunch of dope, and then I went to Old Navy to treat myself, and it was the year Old Navy had released hoodies where the strings of the hoodies were also headphones, and I bought like five of the shittiest hoodies from Old Navy, and then I went to go buy shoes, and I have no idea why... I was on a shopping spree. I think I just was feeling sorry for myself, and it was like Christmas time, and I thought there were sales and stuff. And I went and I bought like 300 bucks of heroin, and then I went shoe shopping, and I lost the shoes. Or no, I didn't lose the shoes. I got the shoes. I lost the heroin. 
Do any of you guys remember those stupid hoodies at Old Navy's where they had the? It's like inside the pocket where you put your hands in the hoodie. It has a like a headphone, like an old school Walkman or iPhone headphone jack, and the strings were the worst quality headphones money could buy. They were, and I bought like five of them, every color they had. Oh my god! And I lost the heroin. And then I went home and I was so upset, but I still had money, so I got more heroin. And my point is that Christmas time is is a beautiful time. The holidays are a beautiful time, but when you're using, it's like it's so fucking Charlie Brown Christmas time is here. That's the feeling of the junkies Christmas. When you get high during Christmas, it's like, it's the greatest thing, but it's so sad because it's like, this is probably going to block our ability to monetize, but it's like, it's being the junkie on the street, staring into the shop window. And it's like, and you're just walking around and everybody's having fun and you're not having fun. And then if you get drugs, you're having fun. And, um, and then you're not again, and you're back into Christmas times here. And and I think even in recovery, when things aren't going your way in early recovery, it feels a little Christmas time is here. So how are you guys feeling? Are you guys feeling like up and excited about the holiday or the Christmas time is here, junky Christmas feeling? I think it's a real feeling. Write me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com if you can relate to the Christmas time is here thing. And if you guys are in a bad way this holiday and you're all fucked up on drugs, it's a good time to mention that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by Mountainside. And if you know anything about Mountainside, you know that I met Chris while at Mountainside and that Dopey would not exist without Mountainside. And Mountainside is an amazing facility. It has a full continuum of care, which includes detox, residential, long-term residential, outpatient, recovery coaching. So whatever you guys need, they have. They also have a huge range of holistic wellness activities from yoga to acupuncture, sweat lodges, art and music therapy, ropes course. I did the ropes course. I did the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge at Mountainside. I walked the labyrinth with Chris. It was a vibe that Dopey came out of, which means everything to me. And Mountainside also set up a little sub website called mountainside.com slash dopey with a little specific tidbits of dopiness from Mountainside. So check that out or call 1-888-833-4922 if you're fucked and you're willing to go to Canaan, Connecticut to get some help. Also, just check them out at mountainside.com. So last week, Mike Mart died and... um Bob Forrest called in. So we have a long talk with Bob Forrest about what's up with Bob. We haven't heard from Bob in years, and Bob has been a huge piece of dopey, dopey history. So I'm glad Bob is calling in. We're going to play a bit of Mike as well. And other people, it's been like a rough week. It's weird. It's weird when people you don't know personally die and you're affected. And I knew Mike. And it affected me when he died, and it affected a bunch of other people who I've heard from over the week. 
And then uh, Norman Lear died. And I didn't know Norman Lear, but I loved him. Norman Lear, he lived a long life. He was a really, really, really influential TV writer and TV producer, TV creator. He created All in the Family, The Jeffersons, fucking Good Times. Just, he was an amazing guy. <laughs> he He basically, besides my mother and my father, I want to say that Norman... Lear raised me. And then, so Norman Lear died, and I always thought I'd meet him before he died, and I didn't, obviously. And Ralph Sorello, I don't know if any of you guys know who that is. This is where it gets really a little bit in the weeds, as they say. Ralph Sorello was Howard Stern's stylist and was a perennial member of the Howard Stern show, and he died this week at 58 years old, and I was fucking shook. I was like depressed and uh, Linda was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, Howard Stern has died. And, and I, I, I just felt like I knew him. I didn't love Ralph, but I did love Ralph on the Stern show and Howard obviously loved Ralph. And it was that connection which made the Stern show come alive. Maybe like, you know how like if you have a bunch of fake flowers, and then you put a couple of real flowers in there, it's going to make the fake flowers look real. I feel like that's what Ralph did on the Howard Stern Show, because they obviously were really friends, and it made the fake friendships seem realer somehow. And uh, I'm sad that Ralph died. So rest in peace, Ralph. He was also only 58 years old. So rest in peace, Ralph. Rest in peace, Mike. Rest in peace, uh, Norman Lear. Okay, everybody is very, very very up in arms about fentanyl and weed and this and that. And there's a member of the Dopey Nation community who's very vocal on Facebook. His name is Axel. I don't remember him ever sending anything into the show before, but I could be wrong. Here is uh, Axel's voicemail. All right, Dave, Dopey Nation, this is Axel coming at you from South Florida. So uh, I have a little bit to talk about regarding fentanyl and cannabis, fentanyl and cannabis weed pens. I got a little bit about all of it. Um, fentanyl and cannabis, the media hype around that is just used as a way to perpetuate the stigma against people who use stigmatized drugs such as fentanyl. And it is used as a way to perpetuate the hype and the fear in the media in order to further criminalize and oppress and come after people who use drugs. So there's a big difference in the media between the things that are actually really happening and the things that are just being hyped. Fentanyl overdoses are a huge problem. Fentanyl contamination in drugs is a huge problem. Fentanyl in weed is just not so. Because as I said, if you were to put fentanyl on weed and light it on a bowl or light a joint, the, the fire would burn the fentanyl and also the weed and it wouldn't make it into your lungs. In order to smoke fentanyl, like I did for many, many years, you have to put it on top of tinfoil and heat it from the bottom. That's the only way that it combusts at the right temperature in order to make it into your lungs. Now, the fentanyl weed pen thing. That is a much different story. Um, the only time that I have ever heard of anyone ever having fentanyl inside of a weed pen was me putting fentanyl inside of my own weed pen because I was a fucking mess and I was like, oh, I wonder what it would be like. And I never really noticed uh, any huge thing about it, but it, I was a huge addict, so it didn't really get me that high, and I never did it again. And I have to say that fentanyl in a weed pen, nobody would put it in there because anybody that just smokes weed is going to overdose. If there is any cases of any kind of department finding a weed pen that had fentanyl in it, I would love to see the data. I have just never heard of it, 
in the past. And uh, a little bit about me. I work for a student organization called Students for Sensible Drug Policy. We advocate for public health approaches to the war on drugs and for compassionate research-backed approaches to the, the drug problem. And uh, we don't agree with criminalizing drug users. We don't agree with harsh penalties for fentanyl uh, when somebody dies, because usually that ruins two lives instead of one. Um, so all this stuff is really, it's really important when you're dealing with people who use drugs because we are, we are an oppressed people and it is really important to draw lines in the sand when it comes to myth and drug war hysteria and when it comes to fact because there's a lot of danger out there that is real and then there's also a lot of shit out there that is not. So I hope this helps. Thank you Dopey Nation. I love and appreciate you guys. Toodles for Chris and stay strong. All right, and that's Floridian and Dopey Nation legend Axel, who works for Students for a Sensible Drug Policy, and you can check them out at www.ssdp.org. If any of you guys have ever found weed in your fentanyl pen, I mean fentanyl in your weed pen, please, that was actually a mistake. It seems like a joke. Uh, please write me an email or a voicemail. I got an angry note and an angry, it was an angry note and an angry Instagram post that said, let's see, what did they say? Someone told me I should still drink Diet Coke. Somebody else wrote, oh, oh yeah, here we go. Hi Dave, big fan. I am writing to ask that you take a more rational and serious stand on fentanyl-laced weed. I encourage you to be crystal clear with the audience about where we are hearing about this third-hand anecdote and what facts we have to rely on. None. If there is a one single verified case of fentanyl-poisoned weed harming someone, by all means talk about it. If not, don't. All right, thank you. That was James. I remember his name. That was James. So thank you, James. We are on the hunt for the elusive fentanyl in weed. And I've been crystal clear about it. I said to Dr. Nzinga Harrison that I thought it was a myth and that I don't believe it. Is it Bigfoot? Is it the Loch Ness Monster? I am crystal clear. But I also don't smoke weed or do fentanyl, so it's easy for me to not know. And it's easy. I mean, listen, you, you don't know until you find it, but I, I can't imagine why anyone would put fentanyl in weed. So I'm with James and Axel on this. If you are struggling with fentanyl or weed or heroin or crystal meth or crack or alcohol, I suggest reaching out to Diamond Recovery. We're ridiculously excited to have Diamond Recovery Group on board as our sponsor. These amazing folks kicked off just last year on a mission to help out as many friends as possible who are dealing with addiction. They've got three amazing residential treatments up and running, and they set up a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week hotline. So if you know anyone who needs a friendly ear, they've got your back at Diamond Recovery. We love them. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to Atlanta or Florida for help, check out Diamond. Call them at 804-909-2525 to get help. They have amenities. It's beautiful. They have an incredible co-occurring mental health facility. If your main problem is co-occurring mental health, check out diamondrecovery.com. 
I got another email I want to read before we get to uh, Bob. It is from a, a person, I'm assuming a woman, called Windbear. Hey, Dave. For the sake of privacy, you can call me Windbear. Only the people who already know me will know who I am. I didn't want to be totally anonymous. I've been wanting to email you for a while and even recorded a couple versions of a dopey story of mine where I get banned from the Philadelphia Museum of Art while working there. But it's not as funny standalone as it used to be while I was in active addiction. Also, I wanted to be able to proofread my first real message to you. I've heard you don't like to do voice interviews anymore. I don't know where you heard that. So I wanted to see if your oh, so I wanted to see if your dad's house is near Philly. I've been keeping a small diary of things I want to talk to you about amongst synchronicities I've had while listening to your show. I'd love to be able to have a chat if you guys are nearby. Most notably, so many of your listeners are fans of all kinds of music, so I was hoping to speak on my introduction to substance use coming from experience I've had uh, from with friends in the Juggalo, Deadhead, Techno, and Crust Punk communities. I've been experiencing the slow and steady uphill battle that is my recovery since before I ever struggled with substances. Growing up with my grandparents, I had two parents who inherited alcohol and drug abuse from their parents and their parents and so on. I am in the not-so-unique position now of being not sober, while my parents, who spent their 30s wasted and high, have been California sober for years. I've gone to one meeting since losing another job while in active addiction, and it was a total coincidence. It was a meeting with other gay and trans people, and I had never experienced that. I had only been to meetings as a child with my mother, who was required by law to attend. Due to that... And having listened to podcasts surrounding the experience of recovery, grief, addiction, I always had a bad taste in my mouth when it came to meetings. I would love to be able to tell my story of this meeting and let some people know who have only been to bad meetings here that there are other options and people just like them who need help. A message to the dopes. If you're listening to this and you're fucked up and know you need help, you're already on your way to getting and doing better. The first step is so true. Self-awareness is just the beginning. Fucking toodles for Chris and be safe, dopey nation. Shout out to everyone we've lost and to everyone who has survived despite it all. Thank you, Windbear. You sent a voicemail that didn't play. I would love to hear about that meeting, and I I totally agree with your sentiment. Uh, If you go to a meeting that sucks, go to another one. Fuck it. I heard something very beautiful the other day, and I want to share it with you. It's a very, it's a programmy thing. It's a spiritual programmy thing for people who don't like God or people who struggle with God. And the guy said something to me like, did you ever hear about Michelangelo and David, the statue of David? And I was like, no, I never heard that. And he said, well, someone went to Michelangelo and saw the statue of David and said, oh my God, how did you do that? And Michelangelo said, well, I just, I had a chunk of marble and I chipped away everything in the marble that wasn't the statue of David and it was left with the statue of David. And my friend went on to say that he knew everything in the world or the universe that wasn't God, bad shit and like, you know, 
evil shit and gossipy shit and things that weren't good. And even though he never had a really great conception of God in the first place, once he knew what wasn't God, he kind of had an idea what God was. And I thought that was a very beautiful idea for anybody who's in search of a higher power. You know what it isn't, but, you know, I don't know. That's just my programmy talk for today. Thank you, Windbear. Give me your address. I'll send you some socks. Send in a voicemail. I still love meetings. They save my life. If you don't want to go, I don't blame you. If you're, But I guess, bottom line, if you're struggling, reach out. And if you're not struggling, reach out. Just be in contact, especially with dopey folks. So when I say that, follow uh, the Dopey Podcast group on Facebook. Follow the Dopey Nation group on Facebook. Just be involved with people. Go to another group. Go play fucking pickleball. Do whatever. Just get out there and and do something if you're struggling. That's my my public service announcement to you guys in this grim but also often beautiful holiday season. And Bob Forrest hasn't been on the show in years, literally years. And he's back to celebrate the life of Mike Mart. And we are going to play The Thing with Bob. But before we play The Thing with Bob, I need to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by Discover Recovery, which might possibly be the best treatment center in the Pacific Northwest. And if you are struggling in the Pacific Northwest with drugs and alcohol, and I know there's a ton of you guys out there who are struggling with drugs and alcohol, Discover Recovery might be the place to go. It was founded by Chris Paulson, who's been on the show, who has a ton of recovery, and he wanted to set up a place that had integrity and some kind of honor when dealing with helping addicts and alcoholics overcome addiction. They have two facilities in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. Their medical staff is available there seven days a week. They are striving to provide the best treatment in a region that has been historically underserved, right? Junkies everywhere. You can't throw a rock and not hit a junkie in the Pacific Northwest. They have master's level therapists, substance abuse disorder counselors, psychiatric services, much more than anything else in the region, and luxury accommodations. And Chris wrote me all that, and he said he's not great at selling, but they operate with integrity, and they're trying to do right by the people that they serve, which is the most important thing. I believe Chris when he says that. Check them out at discoverrecovery.com if you're in the Pacific Northwest. That is discoverrecovery.com. Okay, so here we go. Bob Forrest was a founding member of Thelonious Monster. He was a roadie for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He became a substance abuse counselor. He worked at a million treatments. He started Oro, which used to be called Aloe. He worked with Dr. Drew on Celebrity Rehab, on Sober House. He started the Don't Die podcast with his friends Chuck and Mike. And um, Bob has been a huge friend to me and to the show. And here he's back to remember his friend Mike. Here's Bob Forrest. So it's been a long time since the great Bob Forrest graced the the dopey airwaves, and we have a tragic uh, thing to talk about. Welcome back to the show, Bob. It's great to have you here. 
No, it's good to have you. You know, it's good to be here, and I think about you all a lot. I think about Dopey Nation a lot, and and you know, it's just been a fucked year. It's been a fucked, uh, you know, smooth, a lot of messes, but. You know, the worst of all is Mike Mart, my partner, my songwriting partner, my music partner, my life partner. He's my life partner. I know. Uh, died of liver cancer. And what is it, like three days ago now? But it was, it was sudden and dramatic to the Don't Die audience and to your audience and to anybody that was, you know, didn't know what was going on. He's a very private guy. And it was funny, some of the stuff that went on through the eight months of 10 months of him being told he has liver cancer, he has a tumor in his liver too. When he passed away, it was about 10 months. And, uh, and I kept saying like, you know, are you sure every podcast that don't die, I would say right before, are you sure you don't want to like at least talk about it a little bit? He's like, nope, nope, let's go. <laughs> Classic. And then, and then it just got crazy because he was sick and it like it was getting to be touch and go, right? Uh, he was hospitalized a couple times and luckily made it out of the hospital to, you know, when it's a thing like a liver, I've lived through my friend Jeffrey Lee Pierce, who was one of Mike's best friends also, liver problems, a couple other friends of mine. Like, it's so mysterious. Like, your liver will just shut down and then it'll just kick back on. Kind of like, so Mike liked metaphors. He said, it's like an alternator. You just get under the car and hit it with a hammer. Yeah, right. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> for, it's, it's kicking know, again. Most of you dopey nation don't know about this, but there's a thing called an alternator before there was computers and cars. And it and it would, if it shut off, the, the car wouldn't run. But you could get under it. These are 80s cars, 70s cars, and hit it with a hammer. I've done it. I've done it a hundred times. You just hit it as hard as you can with a hammer and then try to start the car and it'll run for like a day or two. And that's how the liver was with Mike and his kidneys. That's how it was. It would turn back on. They, they had shut down, I don't know, like two and a half weeks ago and he was hospitalized for four days. And then, and then it, they kind of went back on and, um, and he was out of the hospital for a week. I mean, this is how crazy it is. On Monday, he said, I, he texted me like, do you want a podcast tonight? And I said, I can't, I'm going to the zoo, the kids, it's like zoo lights. I don't know if you have that in New York or Connecticut, but Christmas, they put up all Christmas lights in the zoo. And so I had bought tickets for that. And so I couldn't podcast on Monday. So I said, let's do it tomorrow. He said, okay. And then I said, are we on for tonight on Tuesday? And he said, I'm not feeling good. And then on Wednesday, his ex-wife told me if I wanted to say goodbye to him, I got to get to the hospital quickly. Did you get there? That's like some, yeah. Oh, yeah. I spent like two, two and a half hours with him on Wednesday, last Wednesday, a week ago Wednesday. And we said all the things that we, we actually didn't. That's the other thing. When people die, you lie. <laughs> so tell what were the lies America is so fucked up all we did was he said I love you Bob and I said I love you too Mike and but we didn't have any like big heavy thing like oh closure or anything like that because we had a pretty all around the world relationship 
I mean, I have a lot of those. I don't know. It must be me. <laughs> That's great. But but I expect him to say something about his daughters, like look after my kids or whatever. Some some like Hallmark card movie fucking moment. And we didn't. We talked about the great times we had, funny, crazy shit. When he was like, because Mike was successful before, you know, anybody really. He had a a band called Dex from the Horseheads and like I think I like 81 and he was in gun club with Jeffrey Lee Pierce so he was like an established musician before me Flea and Anthony were like he was already making a living as a musician right do you remember so, you remember the first time you met him oh yeah it's hard to forget like this like you gotta imagine like he just he looked like um a new version of Keith Richards. He always right. had his shirt off and he's always skinny and that like, he's just like, and he was dangerous. He was like kind of dangerous. He carried a gun all the time. Which <laughs> like I never, I never knew anybody that had a gun. Yeah. Mike Martin always had a gun and, uh, and he was drunk all the time. And he was cool. And, and, you know, like, just this kind of thing. I always say he was like out of a Jack Kerouac novel. He was like a character out of a book, but he was like this guy. And then through the years, we became friends and write songs together. He was a much better songwriter than me. And he was a great, great guitar player too. Sick guitar player. Yeah. And so what happened was, um, after Tex and the Horse Heads fell apart, he could never really get something else going on. But he and I just hang out and get drunk and smoke crack. And But I, Thelonious was established and he was really doing nothing. He kind of lived at my house. Like he would, he's the type of person that like he'd be at your house for three or four days and he'd kind of know that he'd worn out his welcome and he'd kind of disappear for a week or two, right? And then he'd pop back up and you're happy to see him, right? There's another thing. Uh, millennials don't understand. Like, don't just stay at your pa- parents' house all the time until they get sick of you and want to kill themselves. Just stay <laughs> for a day. Leave so they can miss you. Stay so for, they're they're happy they, to have yeah, you back. Then go. Yeah. Like, it's ebb and, ebb and flow. Ebb and flow. So, so me and Mike in that time on my second album called Next Saturday Afternoon wrote an acoustic uh, song called Anymore. And people love that song. It's about divorce and stuff like that and whatever. So he was kind of, and he would come on tour with us and he and I would do like acoustic parts of our set and, you know, like give the guys a break and me and Mike would play three or four acoustic songs and everybody come back. And then he just started being a part of the only sponsor. Then we had to make this album and our main guitar player was quitting. So it just seemed natural. Like Mike's going to replace it much like decades later, Josh Klinghoffer and the chili peppers. Josh was already in the chili peppers as a second guitar player. When John quit and it just was like natural, like just have Josh play guitar. That's what it was like with Mike and Thelonious monster. But then we make this record that he kind of dictated. It's like a really a masterpiece record called stormy weather. It's all him. It's like his songs. It's his sound. He like completely like revamped what we were as a band. Cause before that we we're kind of artsy fartsy, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like talking, trying to be talking heads or something. I don't know. But what was, he just yeah, gave what was, it this what was his sound. It was like a more rock and rollish gun gun club. Really? Right. That's like, 
Gun Club's one of my favorite bands, but nobody can really copy it because it's so unique to Jeffrey. And so Mike just kind of took like, you know, and we're talking about like technical, musical, musically technical things like, like a bottled bottle slide and, and, you know, big open chord. And, um, and we just made this record in three weeks. It was just like, and he was really the, major part of curating it and writing it and whatever so they make this record and we're all just kind of i remember hearing it because when you're making a record you hear like the song you're working on then you move on to the next song you kind of forget and you're there 20 hours a day for weeks and you just forget what you're what you've piled up and then there was like two days where we just all sat and listened to it with john doe from x produced it and we were just all kind of blown away by how good it was. And so then, you know, it comes out and whatever, and, and we're going on tour. And like, I'm taking for granted, like Mike's in the band, he's going to go on tour. He comes to my house and he goes, you know, I can't go on tour. And I'm like, what? Because we had lots of great shows and we've been touring a lot for years to build up to this point, right? And he, he's like, yeah, yeah, the electronics is your thing. Like, I can't. You know, I, I'm not going to be a part of your thing. Like, I'm some lesser being. <laughs> well, do you think you were the lesser like, being, or do you think he thought he was the no, lesser being? Well, I just think that after Tex and the Horsides got done, he he wanted to be the leader of a band. He didn't want to be second fiddle as what, you know, the, whatever the role of the guitar player or whatever person. You know, all bands, when you think of the Rolling Stones, what do you think of? Mick Jagger. You think it's chili peppers? What do you think, Anthony and Flea? You know, John is so critical. I would say John is so important to chili peppers. But when you think of chili peppers, you think Anthony and Flea. You don't think of Keith. You don't think of Mick and Keith, though. You don't think of Keith when you think of the Stones. Yeah, Mick and Keith. Yeah, but I I use that as an example that 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 Mike didn't want to be a part of that partnership or anything he wanted his thing right and so i said we can't do that like you can't just take over a van and like make a record and put your stamp on it and then quit he goes sure i can (laughs) (laughs) oh man so it's just always been that and so he did go on that tour but then he would quit he would go off and we'd play without him like for a week or two and then come back and it's just always a mess. It never was what it could have been. And then he never really did anything else. And we kept touring. And so he was just always around and a part of it. And after all was said and done, you know, both he and I ended up just homeless junkies and he got sober and, 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 you know, went on to have his own career that I think he wanted in 88 not you know like 97 98 99 and it was beautiful and he wrote some of the most beautiful songs like that's what i talked about on the don't die we did a don't die podcast about him because so many people didn't even know he was sick and as he got as as it became like a obvious to me that he's not going to make it i said mike like like what what you know so many people are i know i hate to say this but we do live in dopey land and don't die land mm-hmm. i said so many people are going to hear that you died and i didn't even say the word die. right 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 yeah i think you OD'd. Yeah. yeah exactly 
I, I didn't say die. I said so many people are going to hear about it, mm. and then they're going to just take for granted you, you OD. He goes, I don't give a fuck what people think, <laughs> right? He's and a, so, yeah, he's so the best. you know, Mike. Yeah. I mean, he's been on this show before. So, and I, I'm the only one that could because I had a 41 year relationship with him. Like he didn't, you know, like I, and it was always combative. I said then why are you keeping it a secret? Right? If you don't give a fuck, with, you know, this is the mantra of junkies and musicians and narcissists and whatever. I don't care what everybody thinks. Anybody that says that probably cares too much what people think. I think you're right. On a certain level. I think you're right. On a certain level. And I think Chris cared. Chris, Chris, your partner would say, I don't care. You know, when I was his counselor, I was like, fuck you, fuck you don't. No, he he, I mean, like, he he really cared. And and I know Mike, like I got to talk to Mike all the time. Like over the past few years, I would check. Mike Mike would always volunteer to help me with sound. You know what I mean? He would right. be like, he'd he be like, great at that. He would be like, your sound fucking sucks. <laughs> he would tell me, like, <laughs> your sound fucking sucks. You need to get this. You need to get that. I mean, I would go to the store on the phone with him, and he'd be like, nah, Dave, don't, don't be stupid. Don't get that fucking shit. He, like, I would send him <laughs> interviews, and he would clean them up. He was, I mean, like he was, but he always would be like, eh, like he would demure from taking credit for anything, you know? Did you, did you, did you, did he tell you that he was sick? Yeah. 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 He told me he was sick and he told me that, uh, it was, uh, cirrhosis from hep C is what he told yeah. me. Um, and he also thought he was going to get better and we had, uh, a really nice conversation. I thought he was, but the bridge to getting better is just to get better while you wait on the donor list. Like right. this country is so fucked up. So I got to tell the story of what happened with the donor list. So, you know, he's not a prime demographic for getting a new liver. And we both knew that. Like, cause we lived through it with, with different people at MAP, the organization I worked at. I don't know if I've told you. Like, I worked at this nonprofit, and a lot of musicians, a lot of older musicians, you know, old jazz musicians. And so everybody in the music community is pretty well-versed in liver transplants, right? David Cosby got one. I think I think Ahmad Jamal got one. Right. There's a lot of people around the, the older musicians, like, uh, Woody Herman was up for one and died while he was waiting for one. The great jazz um, clarinetist, yeah. and uh, yeah, and um, and there's just a lot of lot of musicians that we were aware of, so we kind of knew about like, ah, you just get a liver. Dallas Taylor got one. The 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 drummer, drummer from yeah. Crosby Stills National. These are all people that were sober that we knew, and so when Mike was. I told him, you know, we're going to get on the donor list or we got to get you on the donor list. He knew that it's not that easy. So there's one part of the interview, the one part of the paperwork, really, and the whatever bullshit bureaucracy is whether you're going to be put on the donor list, whether you qualify. And there's these pluses and minuses. And one was that he has minor children. That's a big plus. And then I guess. And, and one, one strike against him was he's 67 years old. So it's like a negative. So you're a little older. And then, but he's Native American. So that was a big plus. Okay. So he gets on the donor list just strictly probably because he was Native American. This is the crazy American healthcare system. It's crazy. <laughs> like, 
somebody made a rule like, oh, well, since there was the Trail of Tears, we're yes. going to. Since we stole the country, they're going to get livers first. <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to get anything else. They can get casinos and, I mean, and dibs, dibs on organs. Yeah, it's fucked up. <laughs> casinos so and organ dibs. He gets that. Yeah, casinos, cigarette sales, yeah, yeah, and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. so then, 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 like a month later, they're calling him about details of that. Like, there's in the interview, he reenacted it to me. So the girl calls him, or there's a scheduled time for Kaiser to call, or whatever. And they call him, and he said, you know, it was, he goes, yeah, it was typical of what you hate. It was like somebody that works at McDonald's, and uh, <laughs> and so the girl's just asking him questions, right? So one of the questions is, would you be, so, and you know, Mike, he's got ADD, he can't focus on anything for more than five minutes unless it's like soldering a cord together that he doesn't need. So, <laughs> yes. so, yeah. so they're asking all these questions and then, and, you know, name, address and all this kind of stuff and family and blah, blah. And then finally they start asking the questions and one of them that she asks you know, she said girl at a computer. She doesn't have any human condition experience whatsoever. She's probably 26 years old. She says, would you be willing to go to a nearby state if a liver became available? And he says, what? And, and she says, would you be willing to go to a nearby state if a liver became available? And Mike apparently said to her, has anybody ever said no to that question? <laughs> <laughs> what, you, what did she say? Well, she didn't get the joke. Uh, she was like, uh, you know, there's silence. Like, right. is that yes or no? Right, right. Like, he right. said the word no. Right. Is that no? <laughs> right. And so... And the other thing, Mike and I talked about it, or I, th I think Smog and I talked about it, because it became a joke amongst us. This was like six months ago or whatever. And uh, one was, why do they ask that question? And it has to be a lawsuit. If it's American healthcare, it's based on a law, you know, on a lawsuit that the health insurance industry lost. Right. So it must have been that some, I, I imagine it this way, like some poor little old lady that lives in Long Beach where Mike lived or whatever would need a liver transplant. One became available in Arizona and she didn't make it to Arizona or because she didn't have the money to get there or she didn't have a ride or whatever. And she died and her family sued saying, you know, she wasn't asked, you know, she couldn't get to Arizona right. by the time I get to Arizona. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. Because like, there's, there's, there's actually only, there's actually, and we joked about this, there's actually three states that are closer than the nearby state, Oregon, to Los Angeles. Oregon's like 1,200 miles away, though it's a nearby state. Texas is only 800 miles away. You'd rather go to Texas. Like, it's just so stupid. Yeah. Like, if a, yeah, if a liver becomes available, the insurance company should pay for that person to go there and get that liver. How about that? Is that fair? Is that fair in a for-profit healthcare system that you have to pay the $350 airfare? Well, he would have gone anywhere. <laughs> He would have gone to another country to get the liver. He would have made it work. I know, but some people can't. Some people don't right. take public transportation, don't have funds available to them to get somewhere. So, I mean, I, it, I guess I, that must be why they ask. Why would they ask? 
you would just be, yeah, in my day, listen, yeah, when it comes my turn, like, tell me there's one in Ecuador. I'm going. I'll be in Ecuador tomorrow night. I'll be there. I promise you. Exactly. Exactly. I'm very, very sorry, though, because obviously you were so tight with Mike for so long. Did he play a role in you getting sober at all? Yeah, in a cantankerous, bothersome way. So so he got sober. He's He would have been 31 years sober at Christmas Day. Christmas so Day. So he got sober, yeah, three, three years before me. So in that time, he had a band called Lone Sweet Orchestra that became very popular, very popular in Europe. And, and I would hear through the junkie grapevine that he was talking shit about me on stage. (laughs) 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 And you know how sensitive we are as junkies, Uh homeless junkies. And, uh, and I, and you know, friends of mine would say, you know, I went saw Mike Mars the other night and he was talking about you on stage. I said, what did he say? And they're like, well, he's saying how, you know, you're not doing so well and you're homeless. And no one wants no one wants to be called homeless when no. they're homeless. No. You know what I mean? I believe the I believe the term is houseless, Mike. <laughs> unhoused. 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 Unhoused, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I and so I confronted him once I got sober after about six months and he said, No, I just I would always because I wrote this song about you and I would always say, you know, Bob, I love Bob, and Bob's out there somewhere, mm. and he hasn't found his way home yet, and some, some, you know, nice thing. But of course, my junkie friends that saw it would say he's talking shit about me, which he kind of was <laughs> in a way. Yeah. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> however, however nice you make it, you're right. pointing out to an audience that your former partner in music is a homeless, worthless piece of shit junkie. Yeah. Needs to come home. <laughs> Needs to find a home somehow. Yeah. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing, but we take it as like the worst. It's great. It's great. Yeah, yeah. And then, well, and finally, we got, because of my experience with that, we got another friend sober just by that term home. So, you know, Thelonious became kind of, Thelonious hadn't played for like eight, I don't know, six years or something. And we're pretty, you know, we're like, we're like, you know, there's bands in New York that are just New York bands. The like television was kind of a New York band. Like sure. everybody in New York loves television. Outside of New York, television's popularity gets lesser. No, Thelonious was like that in L.A. Right. Like people love Thelonious Monster in L.A. And so we hadn't played in years and years. And so me and Mike, Mike was sober, and we were hanging out, and and Martin was sober. And so we were going to play a show. Somebody asked us to play a show. I don't know why at the Viper Room or something. And we couldn't find Pete. Pete was in the same kind of shape that I was in when Mike had started Low and Sweet. So we just put an advertisement in the paper back when there was advertisements in papers where you found out that there was a concert in an actual newspaper. They used to have these things, Dave, it was paper. Yes. And they would print stuff on yes. it and it would be sold somewhere. It was incredible. And you would go, I know it sounds like archaic. You would go there and you would pick it up and you would open it and have pages and pages like a book and it would have what's going on. It was called the Village Voice in New York. In LA, it was called the LA Weekly. So in LA, we said we booked the show. We we're playing. Thelonious Monster was playing. It was an ad in the newspaper. Hey Bob, Bob and then on the Bob, bottom, when you say yeah. that, can you feel the paper in your hands? Can you yeah, feel the I can weight? Feel the ink, the dirty ink. I yeah. remember when I lived in New York. Yeah. When the voice would come out, it was like a Bible had come out oh, every yeah. fucking week. 
right? You go to the back. So I remember, yeah. I remember, I remember the first time when I did a side note on the Village Voice. So we're in New York for the first time, me, Flea, and Anthony. I'm Rodian for the Chili Peppers on the first tour in '83, and we they're expecting, you know, because they're this hot, sexy, cool band from LA. They're expecting to be on the cover of the Village Voice, and and we get there. And it's Wednesday night, Thursday. I think the boys got delivered, right? Thursday, was it? I feel like it was Wednesday, we, but who knows? I'm Wednesday. Wondering. It might have been Wednesday. So I go get it, like, because I stay up all night doing coke with a friend of mine. And I get it first thing in the morning, and the replacements are on the cover, not the red hot <laughs> Did they get upset? Were they hurt? Like, and please, then I get back to the hotel, and please, like, we got to go get the village voice. And I was like, I don't think we do. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there was a like tension for a lifetime between Chili Peppers and replacements over that morning. Wow. So, so anyways, we put in the ad on the bottom and pretty big print. It said, cause we couldn't find Pete, the really the founder and creator and namer of Thorne's monster and the spirit and the driver of it. Um, we were, I, I just had them put Pete Weiss phone home. <laughs> did he and he saw it and it made him cry because none of us knew where he was how beautiful is that it's very beautiful and uh and did you come together and play the show did you when did you yeah we played and then we played and then and pete got sober and and you know we played we made a record after that like in 2003 i think and we played coachella we had our renaissance period we made a record it was pretty good it wasn't it wasn't great, but it was, I'd say, you know, Village Voice used to give you A minus, B, you know, C, whatever. Um, I would say the record we made in 2003 was probably like B minus, right? You're a tough According critic. to Robert Christgau's, Robert Christgau's Guide of Rock of rock and Roll. We got an A. Uh, Stormy Weather got an A rating. A. There's nothing like opening the Village Voice to see Thelonious Monster Stormy Weather like a like a five paragraph thing and it just says a next to it remember chris gal used to rate records like a, a yeah yeah of course of course and that was very heavy that, mike 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 was a huge piece of stormy weather so this is good yeah yeah it was a and uh you know mike got sick didn't want anybody to know about it. I try to say, like we should talk about because my thing is and so he says this greatest thing we got in a, kind of an argument over right before we start recording the podcast and i said listen to me like you can't this is how this is part of your problem is you're so secretive private falsely modest like maybe it'll be good to talk about it he goes listen i don't talk about shit and you do so when you're dying you talk about it every second (laughs) wow that's like the best thing i've ever heard in my life that's so, that's so you and Mike, he, right? That's you and Mike. Right yeah, that was us for 40 fucking years. Yeah. So, and it's right. Like, yeah, that's what I'll do. If I, if I get liver cancer, you'll, <laughs> you'll talk about the, the dopey nation will be the first ones, the second ones to hear about it. Right. Right. You know, I just think that it's important to talk and it's important to share. And it, it makes everybody, to me, me saying I'm not perfect. I'm a fucking dummy. I'm, I'm fucked. I'm, you know, do stupid shit. It takes away the shame. That's what we're trying to reduce the shame in the, in the attic community. 
Like, I'm not, you know, everybody puts me on a pedestal as a dad. I'm a fucked up dad. Like, I yell at my kids. Like, you know, it's like we're all human and we're all lying to each other as to who we are. 100%. We got to stop that. You talk so honestly about about parenting. Like, my kids are everything to me, but I'm not going to be their best friend. They fuck up and they're bratty and they and they need to be, you know, parented. You know what I mean? Sometimes, like, that doesn't mean that I don't sometimes, love them or they're not the most important thing to me. It means that, you know, I'll just say it. Put your fucking phones down. I just, because you say, you know, like I got a house full of kids. They're all on their phones while we're eating dinner. Like it, it just drives me nuts. And so I say nicely, hey guys, we're having dinner. You know, let's put the phones away. And they don't even acknowledge that you exist. They're just glued to their phones. I say, hey, you guys, come on now. And we're getting the plate, getting the food on the table or whatever. And come on, put your phones down. And then they still don't do it. They're like, you know, Sydney will say, oh, I'm, I'm closing my game. <laughs> right. know? And then that third time, Dave, is put your fucking phones away. <laughs> no, I'm, and I'm I, telling you, it probably the- doesn't sit well with the modern parenting world. But I said it nice. I said it firm. Now I'm going to say it like you're going to, I'm going to throw those phones in the fucking Creek. Well, the other day, (laughs) the other day I totally, I like, I like want to be a great parent and I want to be like tight with my kids, like in a nice way. But the other day she was like, my older one is so addicted to TikTok, uh, to the, to the point of, She'll it's s- bad, right? Can we just say that YouTube stories and TikTok are heroin? They know, are. They're heroin. I watch it. It's crazy. What? What's your take? You're you're more of a professional. You're a professional around addiction. It's what just, is the real well, it's thing? Little, it's, it's dopamine boost. Well, you've done it too, right? It it is addictive. You, here's what I always I've gotten on it maybe ten times in my life to try to figure out what the fuck the thing is. You're just always thinking the next thing is going to be good. That's what I'm thinking. Right. Because the thing I'm looking at is just just nothing. And so then I scroll thinking the next thing you see is going to be good. Right. And by the way, TikTok in particular is so objectifying of women. I don't see how in this day and age that the millennials aren't objecting to that. That's a good question. It's just like amazing to me. Like, so we, I put a parental... I don't even believe in that shit, but I did it to Sydney's phone. That shit still comes through, you know, because you don't, if you put it to her age, she's seven. If you put it to seven, it's literally all like Mr. Rogers. So I put it to 14 and it's, it's like fucking, it's like the Kardashians and Cardi B and plastic surgery and goofy fucking fake. It's so objectifying of women i don't know how it gets a free pass in the society that's so paranoid about sexuality it's it's the addiction Uh, component it's the everyone's fucking totally addicted to it and and sometimes when i'm on it it'll be it'll like show me Jimi hendrix and then it'll show me otis redding and then it'll show you know like it 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 takes me down this path of shit it knows i want to see and then all of a sudden it will show me stuff i don't want to see and then three hours pass you know what i mean and i don't know what the fuck happened it's like it's yeah well you just happened exactly and so so yeah, so what did you do with your daughter on the TikTok? What did you do? Oh, I I well what my wife did was she she set it up so that she only gets an hour. Um and then if she wants more than an hour, she needs to request it. 
But the problem is if you approve the request, then she gets unlimited time. And she begs like a fucking junkie begging for 10 bucks. <laughs> you know, just give me 10 bucks. I just need 20 oh, bucks. I'll go for seven. I'll right. go for seven. Right. But, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but what happened was she was saying like the TikTok things, they'll be like sounds where there's a phrase or something that gets repeated and then a million people will do that that phrase. So she'll start speaking in TikTok phrases. And I was driving her and her friend home and I said like an old fucking dad to her friend, she might my, my my daughter's saying some TikTok phrase and I say to her friend, "My daughter is addicted to TikTok." Because I know her friend doesn't get a phone, her parents like won't let her have a phone. And I yeah. like, I basically shame my daughter in front of her friend, telling her friend that my daughter's fucked. And 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 I felt so guilty because like I can just keep my mouth shut. I don't need to fucking shame her. In front no, of but her. you need to follow it up like that with the conversation. I've had that. I, like this is the thing, you know. One of my best friends' son, fifteen years old, doesn't have his own phone, and I I I'm interested in what that is for him, what that is for the dad, what it is for me, what it means to Elvis. Cause he kind of grew up with this kid and, right. or the knowing of this kid. Like, can we have a conversation? Because I'm sure that's not perfect either. I can't imagine what it's like. You know what I mean? I purposely leave my phone at home and it's weird. Leave, you know, I, like you feel like the earth might, might turn on its axis and I won't know where's my phone. Right. But just try it. Everybody listening, try to, if you're going to Vons or like going to the store, or going to pick your kid up at school, just leave your phone at home. You'll, you'll be back in 45 minutes or an hour. You'll be okay. It'll be okay. I promise. How do you listen you know to, I mean? how do you listen to music when you don't have your phone? That's, that's, well, I got five other people that got phones. <laughs> right. Right. So I'm, if it's Sydney's phone, I got to listen to K pop. If it's Elvis' phone, I got to listen to like he's all into, into like Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson because he's now playing piano in his, in his school. So in the, in the main stage band. So they play all Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder. Like, so he's playing all that or Tyler the Creator. And then Chrissy's playing Idols and Fugazi. It's just like I don't, I I don't ever have say over music, anyways, Dave. What does it matter? <laughs> there you go. There you go. You know, you know that spot. You know, like you know, we have a big SUV. Wait a minute, we have a big SUV because we got five people, right? So there's a pink long cord that goes to the back of the car, and that's plugged into the thing that turns on the stereo, right, in the car. It's like the direct line into the car. Uh-huh. Everybody fights over that. Like, oh, I want the pink cord. Uh, where's the pink cord? Because whoever has the pink cord is going to dictate what we listen to. How do you? How do you deal with it? How do you? How do you like govern the pink cord? Who rules the? Pink I cord? have the volume control. <laughs> so right, you can't pick the music, but you can control the volume. <laughs> Turn it down. <laughs> right. Amazing. I mean, I, 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 weirdly, I'm 62 years old. I do like K-pop. I think it's really good songwriting. I like Blackpink and BTS, and I, I, I think that when when we boohoo or or are negative towards a genre of music, there's always some good in that genre music that you don't like. There's some good bro country music. Morgan Wallen is good. 
he's a little bit too self-pitying, but that's that's because his audience loves self-pity, I think. But there's, you know, people always say, oh, I don't like country. Well, listen to Morgan Wallen. He's pretty good. I'll check right? it out. Um, uh, and K-pop, I'm telling you, Blackpink and BTS, they write songs just like, like it's Michael Jackson, like well-crafted, great songs. Um, so I do learn, but more like I can't take Fugazi. I love, I love seeing Fugazi live, but I never sat around listening to their records. I mean, I just think they were a, lot, a band you had to experience live. I don't sit around and listen to the Chili Peppers. I like seeing them live. A lot of rock bands are I don't sit around and listen to. What do you listen but to? But I'll go see them live. I listen to Dylan release this weird... Dylan releases a record every week at this point. Have you seen how much music Bob Dylan has released? It's crazy. It's like every live concert he ever fucking played. It's cool, though. But he did this, he did this Budokan... Um, when he was a, the end of the Christian Christian era, um, where my friend Al Cooper was playing keyboards with him, and um, and they had reworked all the great Bob Dylan songs. Because if you remember, like I'm a Dylanologist, is what it's called, um, AJ Weberman and me. So when he went Christian on the first album, got uh, got to serve somebody. He played no Bob Dylan songs. And he preached Jesus and all that. Second record, Saved, he kind of would do a Mr. Tambourine Man. He did like Sanit. He did Dylan songs that weren't, that could be interpreted as Christian. On the third, on the extended third tour of the third album, which was called Shot of Love, he's now getting out of preaching and he's getting back to who he was. But he, so he reworked all his hits to sound like gospel Christian shitty songs. I'm kind of obsessed with that era. That's so funny. <laughs> he, he literally, he, it sounds like horrible Jesus music, but it's Bob Dylan songs. And my friend Al Cooper was the keyboard player in it. And he told me lots of stories about the tour. He said, I knew two great stories about Dylan. He said, Al's on tour with him. He said he's in Japan or something. And Dylan came to his room and he said, you got any beer in here? And Al's like, I don't know. I don't think so. And they were looking around in the mini fridge if there's beer. And Bob Dylan hadn't had beer for like four years or three years. And so then when Bob left, he said, well, this Jesus thing is coming to an end. <laughs> 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 oh, God. And then when it, early on when it happened, um, uh, uh, Ratso told me the story. Like Dylan's mom called Ratso, who's who's a friend of Dylan's, and and said, uh, "I forget what Ratso's real name Sloman. is. What is his real Ratso's name?" Ratso's Sloman. Uh, I can't. I, remember, remember, I can't his remember his first name. name. Yeah. I can't remember. So Dylan's mom calls Ratso and says. So it says his name. What is going on with my son? <laughs> wow, that's the kind of call because, I want to be on, right? That's that's yeah, the conversation like, I want to hear. Like, well, the the point of it was that like she's at Temple. It was and Larry. People were asking her, like, Larry. what's going on with your son? Larry? Yeah. yeah, Larry or Lawrence? Larry, what is going Larry on with my son? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Lawrence, tell me. <laughs> What is going on with my son? I'm at Temple, and these people are saying he's like, you know, he's like, and, and Ratso's like, we've all tried to talk to him, but it's pretty crazy. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Bob. Do you do you think that he, like he said he was on heroin 
in uh in that mid sixties, you know, motorcycle crash period. Do you think he was? Do you think he ever got off? Do you think he's an alcoholic? What's the deal with him? I think he's in a. It's pretty obvious. Like he's not. There's people like like Mike, like him. Like I'm pretty normal. Like I, I you know, like Anthony's pretty normal. Believe it or not, Anthony is my best buddy aside from Mike. Most musicians are pretty normal, and then there's ones that just are not. He's one of those that just is not. Paul McCartney's normal. John Lennon was not. Right. And like, you'd put Mike you know Mart, I mean? and Mike Mart is in the not normal uh, He's group. not normal. <laughs> He's not normal. Right. And so, Dylan, you know, Mick right. Jagger's normal. Keith Richards is not normal. Right. And Bob Dylan, I think, has been... a. I think he's the type that can become addicted to something and then just turn it off and go do something else. If you just look at, you know, Bowie's not normal. These people are not normal. Jimmy Page, not normal. Wait, hold up. Hold Robert up. Plant, normal. Hold up. Uh, Bob, are you saying you're normal or not normal? Yeah, I'm pretty, like, oh, middle class. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Let me no, ask you. Let me ask you something else. You know what else. I mean? Like, as if the, the people that can completely switch on their own i guess is who i'm talking about because it's pretty obvious that jimmy page was a heroin addict you never heard about him going to rehab you never hear about him going to aa no that's like true. jimmy page is a different type of human and so is bob dylan right and to me dylan's found his groove he just never stops playing like at this at this point i mean i've seen dylan probably 30 or four probably 40 times like the last few times, he was playing like six miles away from my house, uh, and somebody said, "You want to go?" And I was like, "Not really." <laughs> like, I, I think I've had my fill with Bob Dylan for a lifetime, wow. but he's still—he'll be playing somewhere tonight. Bob Dylan is playing somewhere tonight, no, right? You know how he's—and if that's not heroin addiction, I don't know what is. No, I hey, you couldn't be a heroin addict doing that. So he's just replaced his addiction with like being on the road constantly, right? Right. Did I ever tell you the story about like somebody sent me this painting of Katz's, this beautiful watercolor painting of Katz's? And Dylan did this incredible painting of Katz's Deli in the 2000s. And it's like, why did he do it? Was he sitting outside Katz's in a car painting it? I have to send you the picture. It's nuts. It's fucking. Who has the painting? Who uh, has the painting? I don't know. I don't know. They're selling posters, like, like signed posters for 600 bucks or something. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to get the boss oh, of Katz's to that. buy it, but they wouldn't. I'll send you the picture. It's insane. Let me ask you this. I, I know I'm taking up a lot of your time, but I miss you, Bob, and it's fun to talk to you. Uh, I appreciate yeah. you coming through, by the way. It's so nice to hear your voice on the other end of this thing. And I know the Dopey Nation is going to be thrilled to have you back on the it's airways. Um, how fun. instrumental in your. When after you got sober, how how together with Mike were you? How important was recovery to him? He was sober a long time, obviously. He got sober in a strange way. He just uh, does he ever tell the story of how he got sober? He did. He never did. I used I about promising his girl, his wife, that he wouldn't use that day. Remind on me. Christmas. I, I don't remember anything. So, remind me. So his wife, his wife was a musician too, and she was on tour a lot. And and she comes home for Christmas, and there's nothing. And he's out of it, and to the regular old Mike. And she gave him like two hundred bucks, like go get a Christmas tree and go and go find me a present. Like you know, you had to do that with Mike. You had to tell him what to do. So and he disappeared all night, going on a crack run. 
Right. And he came, that was, that was Christmas Eve day, and he comes back on Christmas Eve morning, like at three o'clock in the morning, Christmas Day morning, and says, I'm so sorry, you know, tail between his legs type thing. And he says, and she's not mad. At this point, you can't, you got to a point with Mike, you couldn't get mad at him. You got mad at yourself for giving him the 200 bucks, right? So he says, there's nothing I can give you, but I promise I'm not going to use today. I'm going to stay home. We're going to have Christmas and whatever. And he apparently went out, got a tree, and didn't use. And never used again. How fucking crazy is that? Well, how did he find uh, the rooms and everything? Didn't go to rehab. He just fucking kicked. He was mostly addicted to crack by that time, I got to admit. Like, he was a full-on crack 24 hours a day. Right. Until he crashed for, like, 16 hours. And then he was just like, I'm done. So, yeah, he was just nickel and diming dope. And so, yeah, he was... He was sick for a week or whatever, and then he just, you know, started going to this one meeting on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Um, one meeting a week. He never went to rehab. Mike Martin never went to rehab, ever, ever in his life. And he just promised her he wouldn't use. He didn't. He kicked those next few days. After the first of the year, he started going every Saturday to this meeting at the teen canteen on Hollywood Boulevard. That's it. One meeting a week. I remember he's he, like, I don't want to get, I don't want, I don't want it to get too complicated. <laughs> that was his reason for only going to one meeting a week. I don't want to hear too much. Uh, I, get, I get confused. That's what he used to say. I get confused. Right, right. He, I think he, he told had me. It down. I feel like he told me that he loved, like that a bunch of people, like musicians, he found were sober. And he was like, yeah, there was a bunch. That was mostly, I was there. I didn't get sober at that time, but I would be there every, yeah. Every musician in Hollywood went to that meeting. It was a two hour meeting. Everybody shared. We'd count how many people there were and divide it up by two hours. And you had three minutes and 30 seconds to talk. No speaker, just everybody share. It was a cool format. And, and here's the thing. You're going to be there for two hours. You're signing up for two hours. You know, most people don't want to sign up for two hours. So by the virtue of how long the meeting was, um, you were going to be there and you were going to listen to other people. You know what I mean? Like when it's an hour meeting and you read all the shit and all the rules and is there any announcements and all that shit, the actual meeting of sharing in an hour meeting is probably only like 32 minutes. This is two straight hours of sharing. Right. You get caught up in the storytelling. You get caught up in empathy for other people. It's very specific. You're not going to be sharing until it gets around to you. It was this big room. It was a. It would go zigzaggy down the aisles, right? So in, in aisles of, of folding chairs. And so, like, you knew, like, oh, I'm going to share. I'm not going to share for, like, an hour if it's going that way. <laughs> so, right. so, so I might as well listen, mm. right? And people that didn't want that kind of format just wouldn't go. That's why the meeting kind of stayed static at like 30, 35 people. Right. I mean, that meeting was there. For, it, it moved along Hollywood Boulevard. It was at first at right by this club, Cathay de Grand on Hollywood Boulevard, right actually where the Red Hot Chili Peppers got their star on the Walk of Fame a couple of years ago. It was right there. Then that building got torn down to make a, 
bus station, a uh, uh, train station. So it moved over to Cherokee where the mask, the original punk rock club had been in Hollywood. And then it moved a third time to a church. And this is over a 15 year period of time. I think it still exists. 10 a.m. Saturday morning. And Mike went there every Saturday for 20 years. Right. When you started Don't Die, how did you pitch it to Mike? Well, we wanted to have a podcast. We didn't really know what it was going to be called. Like, we wanted to tell stories. And and um, at first, we were trying to record an album. He moved his recording studio into my guest house. And then we were going to record an album. And we started fighting right off the bat. Obviously, <laughs> <So laughs> not, not going to work. Because he's lazy, too, and he wanted to do all cover songs. I said, Mike, you're not keeping track. I already made a covers album. Then uh, that's when you know you're making a covers record for all those at home that aren't musicians. If if somebody's making an a, a album of all their favorite songs, like most so many artists have done it, I did it. If you're making a covers record, you're just lazy and you've run out of uh, work songs. ethic or, or songs or whatever. So I was like, no, let's write songs. Blah, blah, blah. And we we couldn't and then we did uh we started making videos of songs for aloe for like commercials or whatever and we made one uh we recorded comfortably numb by pink floyd and we took all the videos of of found bodies and we had this kid that was working for me edit it and we watched it and mike mike started crying right and i because it was just an idea like Let's just take all these videos where they find somebody in a park dead or they, you know, like in a car. I mean, you've seen them on YouTube and stuff or or social media. We took them all and edited it into a three and a half minute song. It's unwatchable. Just what's going on in America is unwatchable. It's too brutal. And you did comfortably. It's so brutal. You played comfortably numb behind it. That sounds very hard to, to watch. Yeah. Yeah. It was just brutal. So we kind of, that kind of led to, well, let's have, we see, he said it one day, let's just have a podcast because we couldn't write songs anymore and we couldn't do advertisements for Aloe. So we had failed at the two things we tried to do. Right. And so, so, um, and it's my, I don't know how Chuck became involved. I knew Chuck worked at this rehab that I worked at one day a week. Um, and then, you know, the don't die thing had been, I had been saying that to people all the time for a couple of years. And then we said, let's just do a thing about the opioid epidemic and call it don't die, I think is how it happened. But it was mostly me and Mike were trying to find something to do together because we loved each other so much. We just couldn't get along. So, you know, it wasn't make an album like we thought. And it wasn't like make money because certainly, you know, Allah was paying us to like make content or whatever. We couldn't even do that right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it ended up the podcast, and it, you know, and I gave it to Mike. Like, I, like it's my. This is your baby. You can keep all the revenue from it. Like, go with it. Like, make shirts and hats, and you can keep all the money and just advertisement. You can keep all the advertisement. And he just got to a place where he thought of the podcast. I just need to make my rent. Right. right. So we had the aloe advertised for years and we closed for four months and we couldn't do it. And it switched to uh, Ohana Fest is this concert that a friend of ours does. And um, and I was like, Mike, you know, you could probably make more money. He's like, oh, no, I don't want to get involved in all the hats and stuff. <laughs> <like that." laughs> 
get involved in yeah. hats. Yeah. Uh, apparently, hats are really complicated, yeah. Dave, as you know, yes. as you do them. Very, very, and I, very complex. <laughs> so, really, isn't there a website you just sign up for and like send the thing in? Like, I tried to walk him through it. But he was like, you know, he had a good gig. He worked at this theater in Long Beach, and the and the podcast paid his rent. So no, he, made... he loved he loved doing sound. He loved doing sound, and he loved. I know that he loved. He did sound for Bob Dylan a couple months ago. Did he tell you that? No, Bob did... Dylan played his theater. Did he? T- I told you Bob Dylan won't play anywhere. He didn't. T- <laughs> he didn't talk to him though, right? Did he talk to him? He, I think he was there. I don't think Dylan sound checks. I think the band sound checks. That's the only, but, but you know, they, Mike has done sound for every artist in the world. Like, cause they, it's called the long beach. Uh, what's the name of it? It's like been there for a hundred years. When I was a kid, I saw it. Um, Richie Blackmore's rainbow with Van Halen opening. There. Oh my God. It was an amphitheater. I saw Angel there. He, he, yeah, it's a theater, he the Long loved, Beach Arena. He loved it. And it's it. got three venues in it. And Mike, Mike's venue was, uh, you know, where Rich, you know, what venue was Mike's? Richard Pryor made his famous concert there. Wow. At the Long Beach uh, Civic, uh, it's called something, Long Beach something. Uh, the reason I know that is because Louis C.K. was a friend of mine and he was playing there. I was like, how'd you end up playing here? He goes, this is where Pryor made the fucking, you know, whatever his you know, right. famous comedy record. Prior. But a concert. No, like the, the concert, the live the DVD or whatever, CD, VHS, HBO. <laughs> <laughs> CIA. Whatever. When Richard Pryor was doing his concerts, like what, what was it on? Pay-per-view? I don't know. I don't even know. I think it was probably a, a movie. But I don't remember. I don't think it was in the movie theater. Yeah, it might have been a theatrical release movie yeah. he made at that theater. And Mike also did uh, Amy's podcast for like all of COVID. He was just a part of the scene. Like there's a weird little scene and he was he was very connected to a lot of it. Like a lot of this weird. Yeah, he liked, this, he liked talking about the pain and the disillusionment about addiction and laughing about it. I mean, he really did like laughing about it. Yeah, he he, he loved he loved how absurd it all was. How absurd it all is. I mean, I I've been living through it. My wife relapsed, and he was like, it, it, it was hell for a long time. It's still a little bumpy, but he he said at one point, what did he say? He goes. Well, I mean, let's be honest. He's either going to die or get sober. I mean, what's... You know, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you got to bring it back. When you're in the middle of it, when it's your wife or it's your uh, kid or it's your parent, you're just so caught up in it, you think you can control it or whatever. Mike's the one that brought it right back. No matter what you do, she's either going to die or get sober. Right. Like, why, why are you hand-wringing, throwing your head uh, hands up in the air and threatening and all this nonsense? She's either going to get sober or she's going to die. Was that on the show That's, or was that off the show? No, that was just personal. Right. And that really calmed me down. Like, Because when, you, when you have an active addict in your life, you're just so, as, as a sober person, especially like you with Chris, I'm sure, you're just so forced, like you're supposed to do something. And Mike reminded me there's nothing to do. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even know. Like, I, I thought I knew, and then I believed him, and I didn't know. And I don't have, like, 
I, I, you, there's nothing you can do. All you can do is like, and it's annoying. All you can do is, is keep your recovery front and center and, and prioritize. Yeah, my, I mean, that, that's where I got, like, I knew I had gotten to whatever it is, that place that they talk about. I'm there. And now, and I'm not overly confident that I'll always be here, which place, but what I've lived through this year, I'm, I have no desire to use. I don't even contemplate it. I don't, there's nothing and no fiber in my being that says, well, using will make it easier to deal with Mike being sick or using will make it easier to deal with Chrissy or using will make it, uh, you know, better with the IRS. Like, no, I, I, and I think that's what, because you got to understand, Bill Wilson only had three and a half years when he wrote the big book. He doesn't know what it's like at that point to be 27 years sober. Right. But he did give little signs of what was happening to him and others. And one thing I really, me and Mike always joked about is rocketed into the fourth dimension, mm-hmm. right? Um, to me, that's a place where you don't have no longer any desire to use, right? I, you know, I, I, I always equate using to money. I remember the first time I had money. And I didn't think about using. And I called a friend of mine. I think it might have been Mike. And I called him and I said, you know, I was just driving home from work and I got like $180 worth of tips and I didn't even think about going and using. Because I used to work in a restaurant and I got out. The restaurant closed at 10. I, you know, I have to clean up whatever you have there at 11 and I'm driving home. And I've got money. I've always had tip money, right? Sure. And I always thought like, nobody knows really where I am right now. You know, I've got money and I would always think because I'd be on the Hollywood freeway and the dope street used to be Alvarado and I lived at Echo Park. And so it's like two off ramps before I'm coming from Hollywood. I'm going towards downtown L.A. It goes Alvarado, uh, Rampart, Echo Park Boulevard. And every night. I remember thinking, like, I could go. Like, I, sometimes it was really strong, like, you should go. You could go. Just, like, get one rock and just smoke some. You won't get strung out. Like, I mind fuck myself, and I never wanted to tell anybody this. And then sometimes I'd be like, <laughs> I can get off, right? That, that thing that's in you, that beast of addiction that's always in you, even if you're six months sober, right? And one night I got home, and I was like, I don't remember thinking that. And I called Mike and I was like, you know what? I never tell anybody. Mike was a good person to confess things to because he figured he doesn't run that good of a program. (laughs) 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 Right. (laughs) Right. And I told him, like, you know, every night when I drive home after work and I have tip money, I always think, like, maybe I could go use. And tonight I didn't. And he goes, well, that's good. Right. And, uh, And I said, he goes, you tell anybody this? Like, did I tell anybody that I had thought about it? And I said, no, I'm telling you right now. And he goes, that's not good. You should have told people when you want it, when you were thinking about it. And I was like, I didn't call for any AA preaching. I just called to tell you something. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. You've got to get in the habit of reaching out, Bob. (laughs) That's awesome. I hate that shit so much, Dave. Oh, my God. Reaching out. Are you feeling your feelings? Well, to have a pause, pause, pray, and proceed. It's like, give me a fucking break. How am I ever going to do that? How am I ever you know, going to pause, you know, pray, and proceed? Okay, so get this. Bill Wilson never had any kids. Dr. Bob had one daughter. 
These people don't know what it's like to have a fucking household <laughs> full of fucking maniacs. TikTok addicted maniacs. Of course not. Of course <laughs> not. Fucking I gotta go pick Sid up at school in 16 minutes. And she gets, she's not like an anxious person. She's more like an arrogant person. Like if you're not there on time, she's like, where were you? Right. I was like, well, there's traffic. And she goes, oh, you know. I like it when you when I see you at the gate. And I was like, I know, I like it too, but sometimes it doesn't happen. Stop grinding me about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're a slave to them. And I mean, you also got off social media years ago, Bob. I was always like yeah, so amazed that you pulled that off. Yeah, there's nothing to do there. Like, it just, you know, that's why I wanted to get our podcast out so quick because I want to talk about Mike, not post... You know, did you see the post he put up a couple of days before he died? He said, I don't be saying thoughts and prayers. Did you hear that? Did you see that? No. He posted on Facebook. He was basically said, I'm going to be dead soon. And I don't want don't be sending things to my family and my friends, thoughts and prayers with Mike Mark. You know, do something nice for somebody or whatever. And so, so my thing was like, too much too many people are thinking they're alive and they're not alive they're just online watching what goes on and that was like you know all of a sudden it got announced on facebook somehow within within two hours he died at 11 11 on monday morning and uh within by four o'clock my phone was like getting text message og question mark just that people were sending me that horrible that's how people exist now horrible they see something online, thoughts and prayers, and then they want to know the gossip, and they text somebody who knows. Oh, D, what happened? Like, there's no. no I mean, like, yeah. where, where's, where's the love? You know, it's just. Uh, listen, you got to get Sid. I'm gonna play this yeah. with. I'm gonna replay my talk with Mike from two years ago or something, and that this is gonna cool. be the you and Mike on Dopey tribute to Mike. I appreciate That's you uh, awesome. taking the time, Bob. You are a huge part. Okay, of- I, I got to come to New York soon. I, I got to get out of this fucking hellhole. Are you going to come to New York? Is that is that real? Yeah, I want like, yeah, I want to. I want to come. You know, for I wanted to come for Christmas, and then everything sucked up. I used to come to New York every year for Christmas because I love New York and Christmas. Christmas time. Yeah, it's the best. And Elvis, this is the other thing. Elvis been in New York like three times. Went to Rockefeller Center one day to watch the the trying to get lit went ice skating there just new york and new new year's eve and christmas it's just so great reason not to be around family which i love any excuse not be around family and uh and elvis doesn't remember i go you don't fucking remember he just got how old was i i was like you were like three you should have fucking remembered that we were at rockville center <laughs> we watched the lights go on right how could he forget? And, you know, I mean, how could he forget that? But so my thing to new parents, like, don't do anything cool with your kids till they're like five. They really don't remember up until then. That's very smart. They don't. That's very good advice. <laughs> I think that really is. <laughs> Let them on their phones at home, and then when they're five, when they can remember, shit, take them to Rockefeller Center. Dude, come uh, to New York. Tell me Love when you guys. come. I will. We'll be at the cats. That's how we met. Uh, I'll be at cats. Okay. Just be, be in touch, Bob. Thanks, man. Okay. Thank you. Bye. All right, there he is, Bob Forrest, back. It's always hard. Like, our show is just riddled with death. The best thing about Mike's death is that he didn't OD. I know I know that sounds macabre, 
He had a good, long recovery, 30, 33 years of recovery, and that Christmas story hit very hard for me because that's how Mike was. And I love how uh, if Bob's dying, we'll definitely know about it. And I'm just glad Bob came back on the show, to be honest with you. Thank you, Bob. We appreciate you. I'm sending you a, a dopey Dodgers hat that I hope you wear proudly. And I'm, I'm very impressed that he's not on social media. But if you guys are on social media, you should follow us on our stupid social media, Dopey Podcast. And if you guys want to make stickers, you should check out customstickers.com. They'll also give you 20% off if you use the code DOPEY20, which is a good fucking deal. And if you don't want to make your own stickers, you can buy their stickers. But I suggest making your own stickers. I really suggest making your own Dopey stickers. I would love that. Maybe we should have a Dopey sticker-making contest. Hmm. If anyone is interested in participating in a Dopey sticker-making contest, contact me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. If you want beautiful custom stickers, you go to customstickers.com. Use the code Dopey 20. Make sure it's custom stickers with an S at the end because there's a different site that's customsticker.com. And I don't want to do a tribute to Mike without playing some of Mike's appearance on Dopey. So we're going to do that. But before we do, I want to throw again the request that we need good Dopey stories. We need fucked up stories in order for our show to exist. So send fucked up stories via email or voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I love Mike. Uh, I'm very sorry he's gone. I called Amy Dresner. She was crying about it. We miss Mike, and I wanted to make sure that some of Mike on Dopey was replayed here. So here uh, was Mike Mart when he appeared on Dopey. Dopey, dopey. Just for the Dopey Nation to know that whenever there's a serious technical problem and I'm worried that everything is lost, I call Mike because Mike is the guru. And uh, I'm, a tech, I'm kind of a tech nerd now, you know. I used to not even be able to plug my guitar in without somebody helping me, you know. But I was really fucked up, so. Very many times. I Just recently, I had a buzz in my system, and somehow, stupidly, I called Mike to, so he could tell me how to fix it. And just being on the phone with him fixed it. That's how great your power is. <laughs> That's always a thing called a ground loop, Dave. <laughs> uh, what a yeah. terrible... What a terrible thing technology is. Um, did you start by playing music or did you start by getting high? Which came first? Yeah, let's talk about where I grew up. I grew up at the beach, man. I grew up like, you, you're at the beach, right? I'm near the Bay Beach. I'm like three miles away from the Bay Beach. I'm probably like 11 miles away from the ocean beach. Growing up at the beach, um, just part of the whole story, you know, I mean, it's where I learned how to play guitar. It's where I surfed. I surfed on acid. Surfing on acid is, is kind of incredible, by the way. The first bad acid trip I had, I thought I, I thought I had died. You know what I mean? I, I had taken a bunch of the shit and I guess it was like mescaline mixed with this and that and blah. Cause we were kind of, it was like early, it was 68, 69, somewhere around there. 
and uh, everybody was just taking everything. It was like it was like in those movies where you see you go to the parties, the adult parties, and they had bowls of fucking pills. Right. I actually like had that. yeah. They, there were some parties in my neighborhood that were like that. These crazy fucking bikers that I hung out with. But um, I didn't know what to do, man. I thought you know I was leaving my body. You know that and that acid trip story that Chris was telling too. You don't really know where you're at, you know, when you're too fucking high. And I was so young. I laid down on my bed and my sister was kind of trying to comfort me, man. And I went, I left my body and I went up to the corner of the room and I could see my body down, you know, like when Chris was looking back and back at himself, Mm -hmm. same thing, man. It was really weird. That was my first bad acid trip when I was 11. And I didn't touch anything for a year. Dude, I went back to school. I was not the same person. I thought I'd gone crazy. Well, you had, you know, you, you know? maybe, maybe you got sane a little bit again, but we, we go crazy when we get, when we get that far out on, on psychedelics, it, it changes our brains. That's for sure. I was never the same after I did it the first time, after yeah. I had a really intense trip. The thing that I'm really interested about, it, it's starting to interest me more and more, like the idea you know, you hear stories about out-of-body experiences, right? Like uh, like your acid thing or Chris's acid thing, or you're in the dentist and you see yourself in the chair, or you think you're going to die and you see yourself. It's like that kind of, I've never been a big like soul person or afterlife person or anything like that. But these kinds of stories, it's interesting. You know, the idea of being able to see yourself, like actually, Right. Yeah, I wonder what happens. I wonder what actually happens. I wonder if it's all psychological or if it's physical. It's yeah. it's fascinating. It's comforting in a weird way, though, right? <laughs> could be all fucking real. It could be. Did you, you know, see the, the acid? The acid just gets us there. You know what I mean? To experience the real thing. Was at, when you took acid? Were you like, "This is it"? Were you like, "I've discovered where I want to be"? Oh, uh, I was or? so into acid in high school. I used to take. I, I did. I um, used to deal it, you know, in high school because, of course, I recovered after you know my my bad acid trip at eleven, and I was back on, you know, whatever I could get. So, what was it like when you got with Bob in the first place? So, so I joined Thelonious Monster because Bob Bob was experimenting they had this band that was kind of like a bunch of nerds you know with glasses not your typical rock guys you know like me i'm kind of a sloppy drunken rock guy you know and so bob was throwing all this crap in the mix you know with like uh with with rob graves who was wonderful and with me who's you know ever changing sort of flowing thing with the lonious monster it was kind of crazy you know some people would come in, some people would come out. You never knew who was going to show up. With the, you know, if there was going to be three guitar players, five guitar players, one guitar player, or no guitar players. One time we did this show at this place called Bogarts, and um, they said, well, you know, where's your guitar? And I said, well, it's in Hawk, you know. So they got my stuff out of Hawk, right? And, uh, and we sound checked. And in between sound check and the show, I took my stuff off of the stage and went to the pawn shop and I pawned it again and I got really high and I showed up for the gig really high with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> they were, they were, you know, they were a little mad. They were a little mad about that. You know, did you play? I played. Yeah. Cause there was two other guitar players. It doesn't matter if I, you know, look at it. I'm just going to strum the acoustic. It's my new sound. No big deal. Yeah. A little, that's, it's like country rock or something. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's, that's funny. Deal with how it. Many, I needed to get high. How many people in, in, in Thelonious were, were getting high on dope, or was it just you and Bob? 
me and Bob used together. That was it. And Chris Hansen never used. Uh, Pete Weiss used separately, but sometimes together, but not with us really. And then Dix was thrown in with me and Bob because Dix never says a word. So he would just all of a sudden you would be you'd have some dope and you'd be doing it and you'd look over and there's Dix. You had no idea how he got there. You know, it's just included. Right. <laughs> Yeah, have you ever met? You never met Dix, did you? I never met anybody. The most, the most amazing, amazing, amazing guitar player in the world, right? And he hardly says two words. I mean, I, I did an entire tour with Dix Denny one time, where I think maybe he said five words, and they were, "Yeah, no," and they were, "I don't know." Do you feel like you know him well or no? Yeah, I feel like I know him really well. I took I took Dick Stinney fishing on acid one time on tour. We stopped at this hotel in uh, in uh, in uh, Texas, and we had a bunch of acid. I don't know where this fucking acid always comes from. It's so so. I, we took acid, me and Dicks, and I had this. I had brought this little toy fishing rod. You know, stuck it in somewhere. It was like a um, collapsible one. I said, Dix, let's go, let's go fishing. There's a ditch over here. Let's go fishing. So I took them, you know, we're frying on acid. There's refrigerators and shopping carts and trash all in this thing. And I'm fishing in this thing and I catch a catfish. <laughs> there was a time, there was a time. Here's another acid story. There was a time when they didn't have any money. This We played at this club in Nebraska, and they said, look, we don't have any money, but we have these sheets of acid. We can pay you in sheets of acid. And I said, that's that, awesome. That's fucking great. Let's do that. And they're going, where? I go, where is it? And they go, it's out in the middle of a cornfield. <laughs> so we drive out in the middle of the cornfield with about 30 punk rockers. There's a barn out there. It has electricity. No doors on the on the barn, and we play this gig in the middle of a cornfield in Nebraska for two sheets of acid, two full sheets of acid. So they gave the band the two sheets. Did you take them all, or did you sell them? No, we just put them. We took them with us and took them out on the road whenever we felt like taking acid. It's the magic of it. It's the, acid has a magical quality. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. Like I mean, it's inexpensive, but it's like so cosmic and it's so. It, some little bit does so much and it just turns up, but it doesn't turn up after your total junkie piece of shit though. I never did acid again after I was, you know, in and out, in and out, in and out on dope. Were you, were you tripping acid after you became super addicted to heroin? Just, just whenever it came, came by. But I mean, what is the deal? Do people do acid nowadays? Yes, they do. Yes. They is do. it the same as, is it? Well, listen, I haven't done acid in a long time, but my, my friend who died, my friend Todd, who died right before Chris, he was really heavy into fish and he was heavy into all these jam bands and whatever. And, and he was, you know, he'd be in his forties and he would go to see fish and be, be dosing, you know, he'd be dosing and then he would take some ecstasy and then he would take more acid and then he would like smoke Coke and then he would find dope and, you know, he would take acid. I mean, so I know that in the fish scene, there's a ton of acid. So yeah. I know that there's still acid there. I don't know other than that. Dopey Nation, are, are, are the kids taking acid? Let us know. Send us an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Because really, really, really think about it, Dave. Like, like, like heroin for me was like meat and potatoes. I just needed it every fucking day. You know what I mean? Like I needed it in the morning and I needed some at night. You know what I mean? That's the way it was. That's the way it was for 18 years, right? It was the meat and potatoes. It was how I got 
you know, through my day. All the other shit was on top of the meat and potatoes, right? It was like, if I could get some speed, if I could get some coke, it was great. If I could smoke some crack, if I could take some acid, right? The heroin, the heroin for me was just to, I mean, obviously after a little bit, it was just so you didn't get sick, you know, but it was also just, I wanted to feel that. I wanted to feel, it made me feel safe. It made me feel calm. It made me feel like I was okay. It made me feel exactly the way I wanted to. And then it became like, I I would feel nauseous if I didn't have it. Like I I was, you know, it it was a bad deal. Obviously a heroin addict. Right. When you first, when you first start taking it, it is kind of like the weekend warrior thing where you're like taking it, taking it, taking it. You're not strung out yet. You know, every, think everybody goes through that. You think you can just escape this whole uh, addiction thing. And you, you know, you take it for a couple of days and then you, Oh man, I better back off. You know, you do that for maybe you can do that for years. Right. But I think, when I finally decided that, you know what, I'm going to give up fucking drinking was my third drunk driving. Right. And I figured out that if you shot heroin every day, you didn't have to drink. So I shot hair. I was just a conscious decision. You know, after my third drunk driving, they were going to send me to prison. I was like, fuck this. I'm going to shoot heroin every day. And I, that's exactly what I started doing. Most people do the opposite and they say, I can't be shooting heroin every day. So I'm just going to drink every day. You did the the opposite, which I like. I, I did it. I did it because I had a new job and I had some money and I was like, I can afford it. And I, I just thought I could afford it. I don't know how I thought I could afford it, but I just thought I could. And I remember making the decision though. And the decision was, I'm not getting off of this because I don't want to get sick. I'm going to figure out how to keep putting money into it. You know, which is a crazy thought that you can, when you think you can keep putting money into it, because I wasn't going out on tour and detoxing. I just would try to keep it going for as long as I could. You know what I mean? I lived in a very low income place. I I would spend all my money on drugs. um, And then I would use just detoxes to detox. I would use the public detoxes to detox. Wow. Um, When did you, um, when did it become a thing where you're just like, I don't want to do this. Like, when did it start becoming a thing where it's like, this is enough. Like, and what did that look like? I had a couple of friends, like, like everybody had gotten sober around me in Hollywood. Like there was Bob Forrest. He had gotten sober and Anthony, they had come over to my house and we were, you know, I lived in Silver Lake and was just smoking it. I thought I was doing great because I was just smoking the shit. But, um, hold on uh, before you say, hold on, before you say another word, explain that logic to me. Like how you could shoot heroin and you could say, I'm only going to smoke it because you're wasting so much money and you're not getting high. How did that even, do you remember the logic? Well, I was married to somebody who had a good job, right? And I was lying anyways. I was still shooting, but I was smoking it. You know, I was thinking that, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good because most of the time I'm smoking it, you know? Okay. I just want to make sure. So, um, are you wasting it when you smoke it though? Yes. You're wasting it because you're not. First of all, it, it, it the smoke goes all over the place. No, no, the smoke then, doesn't go all over the place. Not if you're a fucking expert. I was terrible at smoking. Oh my god, you're kidding me! You wasted so much. No, I wasn't. Well, like I that. smoked it. I smoked it one time at Venice Beach. I, I was visiting my friend Todd, and I was smoking it because he wanted to smoke it. And I was, was like, he just like fucking? What are you doing? Well, he was like, this is chasing the dragon. <laughs> we were like, <laughs> we thought we were being cool, you know? And then I was like, this is not the way to do it. No, you know, shoot it. I have a guy, right? I'm friends with this guy who, uh, he's been clean for a long time. Right. And he just relapsed on meth. Okay. And his relapse was, he didn't smoke the meth. 
He didn't snort the meth. He didn't shoot the meth. He would uh, turkey baste it up his ass because he didn't want to waste it. Because if you turkey baste it up your ass, it bypasses some sort of place where you lose some and it goes right into your system. Have you ever heard anything like that? We used to do it with cocaine. The turkey basting. No, not the turkey baster thing. Sometimes cocaine would get wet after you kept it for a long time. So we'd roll it up into balls and stick it up our ass. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, that was his relapse. So anyway, so, so you have Anthony Kiedis and Bob showing being sober. Yes. Uh, so there's, yeah. And there, and, and, um, I started going out with, um, this girl who's in a band called L seven and, um, I've heard of them. Susie and she was sober. She's very responsible for me getting sober. And somehow she saw that maybe she could help me, but we were together, you know, we were living together and she um, had just about had enough because, you know, I was still in my using and every time she went out on tour, um, it would get worse. You know, I would stay home and get, it would get worse. And um, she couldn't, you know, I, it was, it, there were a couple of people, there was Gaza X, there was Susie, Susie G and, um, and, uh, they pretty much said, look, you know, we're going to, we're going to cut our ties with you if you don't try this to get sober, you know? So I said, you know, as a last ditch effort, um, I said, yeah, okay, I'll try it. And it was on Christmas and we were supposed to, uh, go to uh, Susie's mom's house up in Sacramento and I, and I took the, uh, stole the Cadillac and I went downtown and I shot up for the last time. And, uh, on Christmas day, uh, was my first day sober up in Sacramento. Amazing. We went on that trip. So when you drive downtown to, to score the last time in their stolen Cadillac and you come back, did you shoot up when you got back or did you shoot up when as soon as I you shot scored? up downtown? I had 88 cents and I put it. <laughs> extra like change that I had, I had my money to cop and then I had 88 cents. I wasn't going to put any of that in the tank. So I put the 88 cents in the Cadillac, which gets you down there, maybe back if there was a little extra. So I figured, well, you know, I better shoot up down town because I might not make it back. And of course I didn't make it back and I had to call somebody and they came with gas and you know, I was already high. It didn't matter. Were they pissed? Yeah, she was pissed. Anyways, so 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 that was my first day. My first day sober was Christmas Day, and uh, it, it was it was kind of it was kind of strange that it happened on Christmas Day. To tell you the truth, how did you hold on to it? Like, what made you want to hold on to it? You know, I don't I don't know. I'd quit so many times, Dave, and I was just so beat up. And to tell you the truth, the last time when I'd kind of just given up altogether, it wasn't that bad. Have you heard that before? Has that happened? I think it happens because the, the, the impulse to use the impulse to run out isn't running you. And you're like, you're living with yourself. You're living with your decision. Whereas when you're going to relapse, you're going to relapse. So it plants all these kinds of suggestions into your brain. I think that's what it's like. I mean, I've been to treatment where I didn't, I like my last time getting off of heroin wasn't that bad. And I expected it to be really bad because I had had the worst habit I had ever had. And I didn't want to use again. And I lived with it and it wasn't that bad. And it kind of reminds me of what you're saying. Yeah, it, it was like that, man. So, so I, I, I got, so in other words, I detoxed for five days and I picked up the 24 hour book, you know, on January 1st, right? New Year's day, 
five days I was doing okay. And I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start trying to do this because people are giving up on me. Was that the thing? Was that why you decided to try to do it? Because you were like, everybody's written me off. The thing that I read in the 24 hour book, the italics where they asked the little question and it said, should I ever forget the condition I was in? In 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 a town, have you ever seen that? Probably, but I don't recall it. Tell me, man. When I read that, I was just like, I was. It was like I was struck with lightning. I never wanted to forget the condition I was in because I was feeling pretty good. But you know, for five the five days leading up to the January first, I was not doing good, and, I, and my whole life had fallen apart basically. What what did tell me how bad it got? And and did you detox at, at the at the L seven lady's house? Yes, I did, and um. Uh, how bad it had gotten was I had gotten into crack with Robin Crosby and, and all these, uh, and Bob was smoking crack. Everybody was smoking crack. It was a big crack epidemic in Los Angeles. You know, you could walk down, you could walk down to this one street called Burns and just, you know, pick up crack for five bucks. And uh, you could go downtown and they'd give you crack with your, with your, with your uh, heroin. You know, they'd always, you know, they figured they could get you started on it and then they could charge you for it later. It's a good business. But that, that shit was really, you know, that's really like, if I, I always think that if I hadn't started smoking the crack, I probably could still be using heroin today, you know, just a little bit a day. You think so? Or are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm joking. I think. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, uh, I think crack escalates a lot of people's habits like like crazy. I I just couldn't handle coke. It just it just amplified my neuroses too much. I just I just wanted the peace. Like I was not like I did coke if it was around. I did meth if it was around, but I didn't like it. I would just do it because I kind of was compulsive to do anything I had. Yeah, I would I would spend as little money as coke as I possibly could. That was my thing. At the end though, for you, when, when the first days of recovery are, are, are settling in and you read that line, and I love the way that happens. I mean, you were very lucky that you read that line in the book and it fucking resonated. That doesn't happen for everybody. You know, like, it's like, a, it's like, it's, I love that, you know, and, and little things resonated for me too. Like when I finally got well, when I heard them say, rarely have we seen someone uh, follow this path and, and not succeed. I was like, well, I never tried to do anything. So I'm going to really try to thoroughly do everything because I, I mean, like you got clean. How old were you when you got clean? Well, it's 28 years ago. It was, um, 91 Christmas day in 91. How old were you? Um, 62. So you're 62 now. You yeah. were 29. Bob's turning 60 here coming up. You were what? What does that make you? They make fun of me with this math all the time. 62 minus three. You were 31. So you were, you were 10 years. I, I got clean at 41. Um, so 31, I mean, like, that's pretty amazing. And, and there was a nice recovery scene around, right? <laughs> that's how bad it was, Dave. By the time I was 31, it was like pretty evident that, <laughs> that it was not working. <laughs> right, right. I get it. I mean, I, I just, it go, I mean, for me, it went on further. What do you think, man? 31, that's like, okay, so so I started using when I was 10. I mean, that's a fucking, that's a long time, you know, that's a long time using. Now I'm actually past my point where I started using and, uh, you know. Well, do you ever look, like, like we're sitting here and you're, you're going over these stories and obviously you go over this kind of stuff now and again on Don't Die and, um, isn't it so funny the life we have now versus the life that we're talking about? I struggle sometimes with like, what if my kids, you know, this, like the internet is forever, right? 
Mm-hmm. My kids are going to hear this at some point. After I'm gone, <laughs> they're going to hear some shit, some crappy-ass stories about me shooting dope and stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know. Is, is it is it right? Is it? I guess it has to be right. It's not particularly... I, I don't think it's right or wrong. I mean, my older daughter wants to be on Dopey all the time. Like, she, she sees, like, the fans send her stuff. Like, people send us stuff, like, cool Dopey shit. And she, she loves the, the joyful aspect of Dopey. She knows that I destroyed my life. And she knows that I got better to be a better father. And I, and I love being a good father. And I know you love being a good father. I know you love spending time with your kids. It's like, we do this... I mean, I like telling stories. I don't really want my kids to listen to this, and I'm hoping that they never listen to this. How's oh, they that? will. Yeah, they will at some point. The internet is forever, Dave. So I guess the honesty, you know, that AA has brought and put in our lap has to be embraced. You know, understand what I mean? Keep it going. has to be embraced. How's up? Just, just to honor your sort of... Your story. Your parenthood, I guess. Is that right? I think... I know that my kids, my, my older, my, my younger daughters too. So she doesn't really know anything. My older daughter knows me very well. And I don't think her hearing these stories will really change her opinion of me. I don't think. Right. They're just things we did. It's not who we are. Um, when you, when you got into sobriety, because you're still active in the program, right? Yeah. Do you have you been doing meetings with the Zoom and stuff or no? I don't like the Zoom meetings. I do them every once in a while, but I I, so I get distracted. I'm at home. You know, if I don't have to suit up and show up, I don't suit up and show up. You know what I'm talking about? We do meetings on the beach sometimes, you know, in person. I went to a meeting on the beach this morning. It's fucking yeah. 20 degrees. Not like. Oh, yeah, it's cold are. there. It's cold there right it's now. It's right? very, very yeah. cold. Um, it says it's like 10 degrees. Yeah, tomorrow it's going to be like negative 10 with the wind chill. It's going to be crazy. Um, But like, how important was the early, like in your early recovery, like the scene, the recovery scene around you? Like, were you into it? Oh, I was. And Bob talks about that a lot. You know, Bob talks about the early scene and how it was, it was, it was, um, it was welcoming. You could come in and say, you know, hello, I'm Mike. I'm an alcoholic. But man, I tell you, I sure took a lot of drugs and nobody, everybody was just laugh. And I go to a meeting in, and, and I live in one of the most Republican counties in New York. And uh, it's a bunch of like, you know, pretty much like fuckos, like firemen, cops, whatever, uh, contractors, this and that and the other thing, but they don't give a shit. If I talk about drugs, they don't care about anything besides the message. Like they're like a good bunch of people. Nobody's ever yeah, right, right, right. like, they're the most like whacked out fucko Republican types in the world. But when they get to the meeting, it's like, they don't talk about outside issues. They just talk about the meeting. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I know. Good. It is I like great. It, yeah. yeah. I like outside it too. Issue. I get yeah. a kick out of it. Um, what was I going to say? Did I ever tell you the story about um, when I fell out of the back of a truck drinking a bottle of wine? No, tell us the story. So we're all in there, a whole bunch of us, right? And we're zipping around town. And I got this big half-gallon jug of wine. I got a leather jacket on, you know. I'm pretty tough. And I take this big swig of wine. If you can imagine a guy sitting on the side of the truck, you know. And he takes this big swig of wine and the truck turns a corner and he falls out of the truck, right? That's me, right? Fall out of the truck. We're probably going 40 miles an hour. Oh, my God. I roll. Somehow, I land on my back. I roll about three or four times. I pop up and I got this bottle of wine in my hand. It's not broken. And I'm just on my feet. And I'm like, that story right there, right there. 
surmises my drug use in a nutshell. Right, right. That's exactly what happened to me. I also just love the way the scene out there was kind of like the Dopey Nation, but in person. You were part of a community that gave a shit about you that you like to be a part of. You know, that's fucking awesome. I love that. And, um, you know, I, I can't tell you, like, how much I appreciate your friendship, your guidance, your support, your love of, of, of what I do and what we do with Dopey. And, like, you know, it means a lot to me. I'm glad that you came on. Uh, I'm glad that you told the shooting acid story in DopeyCon, too. It was a legendary moment. And, um, you know, I appreciate your time, man. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Mike. That was awesome. Did you have fun? I did, man. So that was Mike. Uh, it's amazing that he got sober on Christmas and it's Christmas time again. And I hope you guys are having a beautiful holiday. Look for my dad to return to the show soon. He is doing very well. He's dying to come back on, but you guys will just have to wait. Join Patreon. Tell your friends about the show. Take care of each other. Reach out to your friends. Do the next right thing. Don't take any wooden nickels. Uh, But most importantly, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I'm going to play this song, but only because uh, I think it's going to make me look a little bit